We are looking forward our way via Zoom for this episode. Hi, this is Brett. Carol and I had the opportunity to participate in the Ohio Leaders of Encore and Age-Friendly Initiatives webinar focusing on housing laws and options for older adults just recently. Brett, you know, housing has become a critical issue for all residents in Central Ohio and the nation. However, I, I'm going to dare to say that housing for our elder citizens needs to be considered a top priority. As you mentioned, we had the opportunity to hear three experts on this housing issue. But let me first welcome Noreen Wilhelm, Del Mar Encore Fellows Initiative at the Dayton Foundation, who helped to coordinate this program, and she's going to provide us with an overview. Noreen, thank you and welcome. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Brett. It's been um, a, a great opportunity to bring in experts to talk about issues of concern to older adults. Um, this is a group that has been meeting for a couple of years just to think about um, ways that we can collaborate across the, the, the state um, and to explore issues that, that affect um, older adults you know, th throughout the state and, and the U.S., and this time we wanted to talk about about housing because you know there's a lot of conversation about about people aging in place. You know, do we want to move into senior only housing? And we know that there are alternatives, and um, but we don't all know very much about them. And so we wanted to share some expertise on on those issues. Uh, Noreen, before we begin, how did this initiative kind of get together? Um, about three or three or four years ago, the pandemic makes time sort of mush together. But uh, <laughs> three or four years ago, um, a colleague in uh, Cleveland and I started having a conversation. Uh, Lenora Brown was working with the Cleveland Leadership Center, and I was in Southwest Ohio in, at the Dayton Foundation, both working with um, active older adults um, in and identifying ways to that we were giving back to the community. At the same time, we knew that uh, AARP and at that point, I think probably 14 uh, communities across the state were working on becoming age-friendly communities, which means that, that they were working with the World Health Organization's framework for making communities viable for people of all ages, you know. And, um, but we, we knew that we didn't have a means of connecting with each other um, everybody was sort of working in our little silos, you know, some, some working in government, some people working in, in philanthropy, some people just as volunteers concerned about their communities. And so we decided that um, it, we would get as many people together as we could. And we brought about 40 people together in August of 2019 at the Cleveland Foundation. And there were folks from all across the state doing all different kinds of things and said, you know, what are the issues that we have that overlap and where are the places that we might be able to work together? And, and it was just an, an, uh, our intent was to start a conversation and to, and to introduce ourselves to each other. Then of course, the uh, pandemic happened and things slowed down a lot, but we did move to Zoom and have been meeting over uh, since actually just pretty much tw late 2021, early 2022, meeting via Zoom, bringing in speakers like the director, uh, the deputy director of the Ohio Department of Aging, and then today's uh, experts on housing. 
it, you know, Noreen, that's that is phenomenal just to have those conversations because you've got the resources. And as you said, we are all siloed. We're all in our own little niche and world and, and don't see what else is going on. Um, so when we're talking about these housing issues specifically, it is such a complex undertaking because basically there are no foolproof answers on housing. We're all over the place. How did uh, what did Ohio leaders hope to accomplish in this webinar? What we brought people to talk about three different aspects of housing. You know, one one person from the Miami Valley Fair Housing Center was talking about the uh, the law as it relates to housing and cities that have that have begun to look at at um, housing for older adults. We brought in someone talking about a, an effort to use volunteers to support people aging in place. That, that neighbors in a community come together in the village's network to say, you know, how, how can we um, kind of barter our services to support people who, who want to live at home for as long as possible? And then the third option um, was talking about Nesterly, which is an effort to connect people with empty rooms in their house with folks who need housing. And, and what that often means is that an older adult, again, wanting to, to, um, to age at home, um, has, has space when their children move out, you know, they lose mm -hmm. a spouse, and young people in need of affordable housing um, will get a discount on housing in exchange for sometimes um, offering some support to, to the homeowner. And at the same time, that helps address the issue of social isolation for both older and younger people. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, as we get into the webinar, what are some takeaways that you hope that our listeners going to take from this episode? You know, we are we are about ideas, and we want people to be thinking differently about their own communities and where new ideas that they're hearing might be applicable. You know, they they might be looking around their own neighborhood and say, "Oh, volunteers." You know, we have a very, very strong volunteer ethic in our neighborhood. Maybe we could use it to support some of our neighbors or others might, might be thinking about, oh, there are some zoning issues in our community that, right. that we could address. You know, whereas somebody else could say, I have a space in my house and I would love to have someone live with me. We just want people to start thinking about, about approaches, new approaches and new developments that, that could um, improve the lives of all of us. Good. That's wonderful. Noreen, thank you again for providing us with this framework for the program. Listeners, thank you for joining us, and we hope you will enjoy this incredible opportunity to gain more and more information about this issue and also just recognize the importance of housing for our el elderly citizens. That's really the first step. Um, I'm, I'm Noreen Wilhelm, and I'm Senior Fellow with the uh, Dayton Foundation's Del Mar Encore Fellows Initiative, and um, my former colleague, um, uh, Lenora Brown, and I started organizing these meetings back in pre-COVID days when we could actually meet in person um, in an effort to bring the Encore and age-friendly uh, leaders together to, to see if there were issues that we could work on jointly or if there were um, uh, issues and trends that we would want to together work um, to affect um, it within the state. Um, Lenora has moved out of state 
I'm sure not forever, but, but out of the uh, Encore space. And so um, I'm thrilled that Chelsea Nichols and Donna Kastner um, helped to organize uh, today's gathering. Great. Good morning, everyone. My name is Chelsea Nichols. I work for the city of Westerville. I am the age-friendly initiative uh, project manager for the city of Westerville. And I'm going to uh, introduce our presenters this morning, and then we will, um, as Noreen said, have the presenters give an overview of their topic, and then we will enter into a uh, panel discussion. We have three presenters this morning. We have John Zimmerman with Miami Valley Fair Housing, and he is going to talk about housing and ageism in Ohio. We have Francis Krumholtz with Central Ohio Area Agency on Aging, and she is going to talk about Nesterly Home Sharing App. And Lee uh, Simplis is uh, from the Institute for Livable and Equitable Communities, and she is going to talk about the Village to Village Network. Um, so we will just jump right into their presentations. John Zimmerman is the Vice President of Miami Valley Fair Housing Center in Dayton, Ohio. He manages education and outreach for the organization, which provides continuing education for realtors, realists, architects, attorneys, social workers, and landlords. He also conducts fair housing workshops for consumers, uh, municipal staff, planning departments, social service, and charitable organizations whose work intersects with housing. He develops fair housing education for social media and other digital platforms. He has a bachelor's degree from the Capital University in Columbus, Ohio, and he resides both in Indiana and Ohio. So I will turn it over to John. Thank you for being here, John. So today I'm going to talk about housing laws and options for uh, older adults. And uh, I'm going to talk about the Housing for Older Persons Act of 1995 and the design and construction requirements of the Fair Housing Act and how both of those uh, regulations help us, but also hinder us. Um, and then I'm gonna talk about some policy considerations. Uh, one policy consideration is going to be visitability. Uh, another one is going to be source of income uh, protections. Um, and then I wanna talk about how municipalities uh, can implement and actually how they must implement a policy around reasonable accommodations that not only help people with disabilities, but help the community at large. Um, and then finally, I am going to talk about uh, the obligation that your jurisdiction uh, has to affirmatively further fair housing and how uh, that we must uh, join in with robust community participation in our five-year fair housing planning process, which is a requirement of HUD's fair housing regulations for any municipality that receives federal funding. So, uh, so that's quick overview. Um, both the design and construction requirements and the Housing for Older Persons uh, Act 
help us and hinder us. The create the uh, creation of 55 and older and 62 and older housing was done through the housing uh, for older persons act. And that uh, really helped a lot of seniors who in fact wanted to live maybe in a segregated housing where there weren't kids and it was quiet and they could sleep late and all of that. But what we've found has happened is that the building industry has uh, capitalized on this and has gone to municipalities and really sold them on uh, building housing or if there's uh, subsidies that involve like low-income housing tax credits, sold them on a package that if they either have a preference or have a mandate for building solely uh, housing for older persons, that, um, that crime will go down, traffic problems won't happen, all kinds of different things. Um, however, we have found, and I think you're especially going to hear from the other panelists, that there are lots of people who don't want to uh, live in segregated housing. And so that um, we find that sometimes that, uh, you know, when people want to sell their home and go into multifamily housing, the only thing that's out there might be, uh, you know, housing that is segregated away from families with children. And so that's something that we uh, want people to know. It's important to understand that fair housing laws are governed by protected classes and age in the United States is not a protected class in uh, uh, housing when it comes to federal laws. However, we have a few local municipalities or states might you know, protect age, and then that age protection varies. So for example, in Dayton, Ohio, they protect age, but it's for 40 and over. Whereas in Athens, Ohio, it'll be for everyone 18 and over like the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. And so municipalities have to be careful so that they don't get into trouble by banning housing for families with children and having exclusively segregated housing because they could run afoul of the fair housing laws. So, so you can see it helps us, it hinders us. And so we need to work on those policies around having uh, aging in place in an integrated setting and uh, have some promotion around that. The design and construction requirements um, uh, really help a lot of people when they are used. However, uh, unfortunately, they're not used in many cases because the even though any new housing with four or more units must have seven mobility or wheelchair features to it, um, building permits can be issued without the building inspector or the building department ever taking a look at the plans. And uh, so sometimes architects and builders just forget about it. No one at the local jurisdiction talks to them about it and the housing gets built. And then later on it gets audited and we've seen housing providers find that they have to do two and a half million dollars in rehab. Uh, and so uh, there are lots of ways the, that uh, uh, we can do things at the local level uh, and uh, make sure that uh, all housing is built, that is, you know, constructed so that people can age in place. <clears throat> and 
So to wind up, there are three things that, uh, uh, that I believe people should look at as uh, policy considerations. One is visitability. Ask yourself, can a person in a wheelchair come to your home and uh, be there for Thanksgiving? Uh, come in, roll in on their own through the front door uh, and then be there long enough that they could use a bathroom and close the door for privacy. And many of our homes won't allow us to do that. So Pittsburgh has a visitability ordinance and anyone that wants to make their house more visitable and have like a ground floor entrance and an accessible bathroom can get a $2,500 tax rebate uh, for doing those things. And it applies to people who would buy commercial property that's vacant and they are renovating it. Uh, it applies to single family homeowners, people in townhouses, apartments. Uh, it's a really great uh, ordinance. Another thing that we see that cities have done that helps not only older persons, but everyone in the community is source of income protections under fair housing laws. And so Columbus added one and their protections uh, are very, very broad so that regardless of what someone's income is, they can't be discriminated against. And over my 25 years or so of fair housing, I've heard landlords say, gosh, we don't want to rent to older people because if they get behind on their rent, the, a lot of times we can't garnish their income if it's, you know, uh, from SSI or, you know, something like that, Social Security. Uh, and we so we really uh, try to reject those applications from older adults. And that is something that... Um, uh, is harmful to everyone. Uh, these source of incomes also protect anyone, uh, whether they're young or old, who has some type of local subsidy to pay for housing, which a lot of landlords can now uh, join voluntarily, but it uh, becomes a program that they have to accept that source of income. Um, the, uh, and so those are the things that I can talk about more in depth, you know, and uh, in the breakout sections, uh, I can talk about uh, fair housing planning and how um, before planning is done, every jurisdiction must have a series of focus groups, interviews, surveys that uh, everyone can uh, be involved in and give their input so that elected officials find out from you, the public, what are the meaningful actions that they need to take over a five-year period to make housing more accessible. And a meaningful action is one which has a positive material impact, okay? And so it's not just words, something has to be built, something has to change, and we have to see a material outcome. So, uh, so that is an overview of the things that I believe would really help not only older persons, but the community at large and help people age in place and especially those who don't want to be uh, segregated. All right, thank you, John. Next, we will have Frances Krumholtz. She has served as, a, um, as the volunteer engagement coordinator for Central Ohio Area Agency on Aging for three years. In this position, she promotes intergenerational home sharing through Nesterly Central Ohio, coordinates a friendly caller volunteer initiative that provides social support to people in the region, and has developed and launched other programming that focuses on the health and well-being of older adults. 
Previously, she served as BESA's Development and Operations Coordinator, and she has experience shaping development strategies with nonprofit agencies of all sizes. Frances holds a BA from The Ohio State University in Sociology and Spanish. She serves on the Development Committee for Girls on the Run of Central Ohio, and in her spare time, she enjoys volunteering, running, hiking, reading, and travel. So take it away, Frances. Thank you. Thank you. According to the Ohio Department of Aging, uh, between 2010 and 2030, the number of Ohioans age 60 and older is projected to increase by 33.4%. Um, to give a little context to that number, during that same time period, Ohio's total population is expected to grow by just 0.7%. Um, and by this 2030 year, uh, we expect that Ohioans age 60 and older will make up 26.3% of Ohio's total population. Um, in central Ohio, which is where I'm located, we're expecting to add another million people by 2050. <clears throat> and in Columbus alone, we're already short 54,000 affordable housing units. Um, so we've got a few ways of meeting this gap. Uh, regional planners estimate that we need to build 14 to 21,000 new units each year. Um, in terms of how we're doing to hit that benchmark in 2020, we built fewer than 12,000. Um, and lest we, we blame that on uh, 2020 and the crazy pandemic year that that was, that was actually the highest number of units that we had built uh, in a single year in the last 15 years. So another tool that's at our disposal is to use more of the housing that we already have. Um, Columbus has 27,000 spare bedrooms that are in the homes of baby boomers that are not being used currently. So this is where Nesterly comes into play. Um, Nesterly's goal is to make it safe and easy to home share. We've got this huge opportunity to build intergenerational connections while increasing access to affordable housing and also allowing older adults to pursue what we know is overwhelmingly the preference, which is to remain in their long-term home as they age. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, we're all experiencing rapid cost of living increases. And for folks on a fixed income, this can be even more challenging. Uh, home sharing is a way that we can ease one tool for easing those financial burdens while also making new friends along the way. So Nesterly Central Ohio is a home sharing platform and I'll go through briefly um, kind of how it works. So an interested host can create a profile on Nesterly's website. They'll share a little bit about themselves and their space and why they're interested in home sharing. And they get to control the information that is shared as well as the price of rent. Hosts also have an option to request additional assistance um, with some light chores around the house in exchange for reduced rent. Um, what we've seen in central Ohio is that 40% of our home share listings take advantage of this task exchange um, with an average saving of $122 per month for the guest. Um, when a potential guest is interested in a listing, they'll reach out through Nestorly's website. Um, they've got a built-in chat and even video messaging so that everything can stay organized and in one place. Obviously, when we talk about home sharing, safety and security uh, are really important. It's a big uh, priority for us. Um, the security features that are built into Nesterly are a big, big reason why Central Ohio Area Agency on Aging chose to partner with them. Um, Nesterly thoroughly vets its users through an application, background checks, references, 
Um, the home, home sharing agreement itself is fill in the blank. So it guides users through important conversations prior to move in, thinking about things like expectations around private space versus shared space, uh, guests, pets, those types of things. Um, secured and automated payments are also part of the system, as well as ongoing customer support, which is led by social workers. Um, so the Nesterly team is really there for hosts and guests throughout the entire process. So from sign up through the end of the home share. Um, and it is a great resource to know that you've got a team of folks who you can turn to if any issues uh, come up along the way. Um, home sharing through Nesterly Central Ohio is a win-win-win. Um, hosts get additional income, guests receive an affordable housing option. Um, ideally, both parties are going to get the opportunity to develop a friendship that will enrich their lives. Um, intergenerational home sharing with these additional safety features in place makes sense. Um, it's why Age-Friendly Innovation Center, Age-Friendly Delaware, and Age-Friendly Westerville have already included Nesterly Central Ohio in their action plans. Um, I know I saw a couple of questions come in. I will take a peek and see if I can answer those. Actually, I think I've already hit my time. So I'm happy to answer questions um, during the breakouts, or I think we'll have a little bit of time at the end as well. So thank you. Thank you, Francis. All right, next we have Lee Sampelis, and um, Lee is currently a Del Mar Encore Fellow working for the Dayton Foundation and in partnership with the Miami Valley Regional Planning Commission on establishing age-friendly initiatives in Southwest Ohio. As part of the Institute for Livable and Equitable Communities, uh, trained as an attorney and following a career in legal publishing at LexisNexis and Bloomberg LP, Lee has been working in nonprofits for the past decade. She served as the executive director of St. Vincent de Paul in the Dayton community and as the executive director of the Foggy Bottom and West End Village in Washington, D.C., Lee has remained active in the village movement, serving as the president of the board of the Washington Area Villages Exchange, and is currently a member of the board of directors for the Village to Village Network. She earned her BA in history from Wright State University, possesses a master's in management from Antioch. Thank you. College and received her JD from the University of Dayton and is licensed to practice in the state of Ohio. And with that, I'll turn it over to Lee. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Chelsea. I'd like to share with you a housing option called Aging in Place. The Aging in Place models center around, uh, around research, primarily conducted by ARP, that says most people, as they get older, want to remain in their homes and communities. So about 20 years ago, um, in the Beacon Hill area of Boston, a group of friends and neighbors got together and they created what I would call a virtual village. So what is a village? A village is what I would call a volunteer-driven community organization that provides services that enable older adults to live longer and healthier and happier in their homes and communities. Um, a village is uh, what you just heard from Francis 
is the timing is really right for the village movement in our country. You saw the aging demographics that Francis just presented. Uh, one in five uh, people in the United States by the year 2030 will be over the age of 65. We are an aging population. Ohio ranks number 14 in the nation in terms of that aging demographic. So the timing is right for these grassroots, self-governing organizations in our community to take root. There is now about 45 um, there's about 280 villages in 45 states in the United States. There's also villages in about four countries. We'll put in the chat the uh, link to the V2V network where there's a map and you can find out if there's a village within your area. There's also about 80 villages that are now in what I would call the exploratory and developmental stage. The villages members receive their services from volunteers of all ages. And the services provided can be in the home in terms of light housekeeping, yard work, or transportation to and from your doctor's appointments to the grocery store, uh, pharmacy, that type of thing. Volunteers help with that. Also, the village is a good place to get information or referrals. Many of the villages have a long list of vetted service providers that can help their members in terms of attaining services. So if you need a tax form filled out, or um, one villager came to me and said, uh, when I was serving at the village in DC, that they needed a vetted roofer to help them uh, with, within their home. So they're a good source of resources and referrals. Also care coordination. If you live alone and you're um, having hip surgery and when you come home, you need a little bit of help within your home and also to take you to doctor's appointments. Technology assistance is provided and we all needed that uh, through the pandemic and as we were using how to use technology to do telehealth and also uh, Zoom programs and meetings. There's friendly visits, there's walking buddies. Again, when I served in DC as the village director, we were very close to the Kennedy Center. So there was a theater almost every night. And so if one of our members perhaps did not wanna walk alone, we had volunteers that would walk with them. Them. Volunteerism is a key element of the village. This slide just reinforces the fact that people do want to remain in their homes for the long term. And they also want to be able to make informed choices about how they live and where they live. Um, the village model, I would call it almost an affordable alternative and a creative housing solution because you do defray the cost, um, the, the high cost of assisted living and long-term care services. That's not to say at some point in your life, you may need those types of services. The programs the villages focus on, there's, there's a wide variety. I like to call it mind, body, and spirit. The mind is the educational seminars, the speakers that are brought in for the different programs. Body, of course, is fitness classes, meditation, yoga, tai chi, um, falls prevention classes, 
all types of things based um, to improve your health and wellness. And then spirit, I like to think of in terms of how can you be more participative? How can you get involved within your village? Many of our members are also volunteers. So they're organizing a lot of these programs and they're heavily involved in creating uh, all types of activities. There's cultural activities, um, museums, uh, art, art centers, that type of thing. And also just the social gatherings that are so critically important. Coffee club every week, happy hours. And yes, we did all those things within a village model, even during the pandemic. So you can see one example on this slide of where people are participating in person and then through Zoom. So to, to end my presentation, um, the village model is again, another, what I would call affordable alternative uh, for housing. And I'll turn the baton back to you, Chelsea. Thank you. All right, thank you, Lee. So we are going to move into the uh, uh, panel discussion. We're gonna spend probably the next 15 minutes uh, asking the panelists questions. Um, I do have some questions I would like to ask them for um, on behalf of everyone, but if any of the uh, attendees would like to add your own questions into the chat box, please feel free to do so. Um, if we don't get to them during the panel discussion, we can discuss those during the breakout sessions. Um, but we will monitor the, the chat box. So I'm going to uh, pose my first question to John. Uh, it sounds like, John, that part of the Housing for Older Persons law allows families with children to live in some of the housing set aside for older persons 55 and over. Can you confirm that for me? Uh, so the... Uh... The way the Housing for Older Persons Act works is that 62 and older housing is uh, exclusively 62 and older. And then the 55 and older provision is a little bit more complicated than it ever needed to be. Uh, but the writers of this legislation wanted to have uh, lots of options for builders and owners of large multifamily complexes. So they said that for 55 and older housing, only one person need be 55 and older. Uh, and that if you had 100 units, you could just go under that law and then you could have lots of people of different ages. But they also allow a lot of groups to say 55 and older and must be 50 to live here or 55 and older and must be 45. And most take that option so that the housing becomes pretty segregated. There's also another option is that you can decide on uh, out of 100 units, you might say we want to reserve 20 exclusively for families with children. And in those 20, no one need be 55 and older. However, there are very few uh, um uh, places that do that, because when the law got implemented and a lot of builders did that, uh, there were some seniors who uh, thought their advertising said senior housing. So they thought it was all going to be all senior housing, and then it wasn't. So they soon learned that that, that they would not exercise that 20% option unless they weren't able to sell out, say, condominiums. 
and then they would exercise it. Uh, and so, uh, so there's a hodgepodge of uh, units all over the country with different things. But uh, in 2022, most 55 and older housing uh, is segregated housing. It is at, at least 50 and over that you have to be to live there. Uh, and so those are some of the complications with uh, the Housing for Older Persons Act. Um, one other thing, um, and this is a good thing, I think, is that a lot of uh, places that have been apartment complexes or condo complexes that were market rate uh, has have a lot of people my age and older, okay, that are living there and they've lived there for 20, 25 years and they want to convert to housing for older persons. It is very difficult. And uh, the, that because uh, those older houses are not accessible and HUD would prefer all new senior housing be built with those seven mobility features that are required for any complexes that have four or more uh, units in them. So, uh, so that's just a few other things about housing for older persons. Thank you, John. Um, Francis, can you talk a little bit more about the costs associated with Nesterly? Sure. So um, hosts and guests alike can create their profiles for free um, if slash when you are ready to move into a home share agreement. Um, there's a one-time booking fee that depends on the length of the stay. So it's going to be somewhere between $95 and $195 um, when you compare that to a traditional security deposit that's, that's much more affordable. Um, so that there's that one-time booking fee that goes to Nesterly. Um, and there's also an ongoing service fee of two and a half percent, and that helps to cover the uh, payment processing um, and some of that ongoing customer support as well. Great, thank you. It looks like we have a couple questions for Lee in the chat. Um, the first one is from Carol. It says, "Villages here in Central Ohio are phenomenal." A wonderful program, but they are successful in neighborhoods that are higher socioeconomic populations. Does it work in neighborhoods that are struggling financially? How can clients afford the membership costs? Thank you for the question. Um, villages are based on many different kinds of models. And it sounds like in Columbus, um, the membership model has a higher based membership fee, primarily to support the operational staff, whether that's an executive director, a part-time assistant. Many villages um, in the DC mid-Atlantic area are what I would call volunteer, totally volunteer driven. Um, many of those villages are in different kinds of income levels where there is no membership fee or it's set at $20. So there are different types of models that can be attractive for different kinds of communities. So again, I met, mentioned this is very community-based, grassroots driven, and it depends on uh, what community you're in, in terms of the membership fee. Also, uh, some villages do a great uh, deal of fundraising um, and other kinds of development activities, including grant writing, to support lower income members in that particular vicinity of the village. I know in DC, we had um, more than 150 scholarships that were offered uh, to offset uh, the, the cost of the membership dues. 
Thank you for the question. Thank you, Lee. Uh, I'm going to jump back to John. Um, we heard you talk a little bit about the um, when the structures are built and the inspections that happen. And I'm just wondering if you can explain a little bit about why code enforcement and building inspectors do not have to check for compliance with the Fair Housing Act. Unfortunately, when they wrote the Fair Housing Act and added the design and construction requirements in 1988, and then Ohio added them in 1992, neither uh, law spoke to who was to uh, uh, cover compliance. It's the, the law just doesn't speak to it. And as a result, uh, everyone is thrown at, they're like, not my job. <laughs> I've talked to building inspectors and they said, please do not advocate for that. We don't want anything more added to our uh, plate. However, recently I did a presentation for the Ohio Association of Code Enforcement. And I told them this, they all get federal money and that whether they believe that themselves, the code enforcers or the con uh, building inspectors are not responsible for it, it is my belief that the municipalities they work for are responsible to do that because that they have to comply not only with the Fair Housing Act, but with Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. And people that uh, have to comply with that law, their programs must be what we call programmatically accessible to people with disabilities. There is not a jurisdiction in the United States that does not have a person with a disability under the Fair Housing Act. And understand this, the definition of disability under the Fair Housing Act includes both temporary and permanent disabilities. So someone can break their leg and they can be out of commission for three months. Under the Fair Housing Act, they're considered disabled. They have a major impairment, unlike the ADA or the Social Security, which says they must be permanent long-term uh, uh, disabilities. So I put in my slide to them, I said, someone in your municipality needs to figure out how you're going to get that information to uh, all people who submit building plans for multifamily housing. Thank you, John. Uh, Francis, can you talk about what is included in the background checks? Yeah, this is a, a, a common question that I get um, when I go out to, to speak. And I have finally, um, I haven't quite memorized the full list yet, but I've got a handy dandy cheat sheet that I keep near me. Um, so the background check that Nesterly runs includes national criminal search, uh, sex offender registry, global watch list search, an address history search, and social security verification. Um, so, you know, a lot of that boils down to making sure that somebody is who they say they really are, um, and just checking for anything else that might be of concern in somebody's background. Thank you, Francis. There's another question in the chat box for Lee from Donna. Um, for villages, uh, are we at a point where we might have data suggesting how the presence of villages delays the need for someone to move into a assisted living facility? 
That's a great question. And villages are doing more work on collecting uh, survey data such as that. Um, as part of the Village to Village Network, we've recently uh, commissioned a, a study that will address this particular topic, Donna. So um, what we know anecdotally is it is helping um, and extending uh, people's uh, term within remaining in their own homes and communities um, in D.C., the Office on Aging, we worked very closely with them and the council and the Office on Aging were getting data statistics that we were impacting uh, long-term care facilities and assisted living facilities. Again, that's not to say people might not be ready for that or retirement communities, but the village model is just another option for people to stay longer within their own homes. So the short answer is we're beginning to collect that data. Thank you for the question. Great, thank you, Lee. Um, so there is a question in the chat for John and I'm going to pair it with another question that I had. Um, the first one is, are there many apartments built out of compliance with the fair housing accessibility requirements and um, do uh, communities legally have to have a 504 coordinator on staff to handle things like ADA complaints, uh, building plan reviews, and so forth? Well, let's talk to the first one. So many jurisdictions are too small to have someone dedicated 40 hours a week to 504 issues. They just are. Um, that doesn't relieve the jurisdiction of its responsibility to address them. And so it becomes one-tenth or one, uh, one one-hundredth of somebody's job. Um, somewhere they should figure that out. You know, who has time to address that, okay? Um, and then the... Um, uh, and so we find many places have been built out of compliance. Uh, and what happens is, is that a lot of builders won't allow uh, fair housing advocates or uh, uh, auditors in to see their buildings before they go to drywall or anything like that. And so they get built and they don't get audited until after the building is done. And then the, someone files a complaint and then they go to mediation. And we have seen um, some places to be ordered to do up to two and a half million dollars in rehab. And uh, that, uh, and unfortunately, like I, we saw one large complex near Dayton that was built, it was sold off to someone and the new owners accrued that liability. And they had to run off to Texas to find some, these architects who, who were the ones that failed to build it. They did things like, um, all the, not all of them, but most of the one bedrooms had two steps up into the bedroom. So if you were a single person in a wheelchair and you wanted to rent that, that place, you'd have to flop yourself out of your wheelchair, crawl on your belly up into the bedroom, you know, and maybe have another wheelchair up there. I, it, you know, so those types of things happen, you know, a lot. Um, and so the, one of the things I didn't talk about in my overview, uh, and uh, I hope I can do it now or in the breakouts, is to talk about municipalities' uh, responsibility to uh, uh, give their residents reasonable accommodations to municipal rules. 
and that kind of happens with this. Sometimes when we find places that are older and they haven't, they weren't required to be accessible, that a person can ask their landlord for a reasonable accommodation. Can you put uh, a ramp over the two steps up into the townhouse? Um, can we add some grad bars in, in the bathroom? And landlords, uh, you know, uh, uh, must allow them to do that so that, in fact, they can use and enjoy the homes like anyone else would be able to use and enjoy a home. I guess we will go in order of the um, presenter's order from the beginning of the meeting. So if someone from John's group would like to report back on your discussion. We had a cozy group and I'm the only one left. So you're stuck with me. I will tell you our conversation with John was fascinating and it was around this concept of reasonable accommodations. And he walked us through some examples um, that just brought it to life. And Tony was in that room. And uh, in all honesty, his category is probably the, 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 the biggest mystery to me. So I learned lots as I listened to Tony and John speak. John, do you have more to add here? Well, the, the thing that, uh, uh, so I'm not sure, are we going to go to call to action uh, at this time or? Um... We will do that. Uh, we're going to kind of summarize what everybody talked about in the breakout uh, groups, and then we will close with the call to action. Okay. So in terms of the breakout room, um, we did focus on reasonable accommodations, and that's something that I uh, uh, just uh, glossed over in my introduction. Uh, it is such an important aspect of fair housing laws because the fair housing laws uh, apply to people who either have a temporary or a permanent disability. And one of the things that I suggested uh, that the people in my room do is to Google Santa Rosa, California, reasonable accommodation ordinance. And it is the best ordinance out there. Uh, if a jurisdiction was gonna model after someone, it would be them. And anybody who has a problem with a zoning law or a procedure, uh, whether it's for water service or trash pickup or anything like that, and they have a problem due to their disability, can call up Santa Rosa, California, and they help them solve the problem. And they have staff that have been trained to do that and uh, really uh, helps them comply with Section 504's mandate uh, to make their programs accessible to people with disabilities. And this, of course, helps everyone because whether you're 65 or 25, you can get a broken leg and have a problem and have, you know, uh, it could be hard to get your trash out on a Monday morning and uh, to get uh, some people to help you with the city's help. If you don't have somebody else or to solve the problem is, is a really great step up, you know, that uh, all residents who uh, have been coming out of the pandemic feeling somewhat isolated, if they could have that connection with their cities. Thank you, John. The next group would be for Francis. Um, the first thing Francis touched on was one challenge that they've had in getting the Nesterly going in Central Ohio. And it has been kind of what she referred to as the chicken and the egg situation. Um, you need enough hosts 
uh, and, you know, a variety of personalities, kind of another layer into that in order to make it work. And then you also need enough guests. So not having enough hosts has been a challenge. And then also not having enough guests or, um, you know, pairing people. This is probably due to the fact that they launched Nesterly in fall of 2019. And we all know what happened soon after that. So um, that has kind of been their challenge in getting Nesterly going in central Ohio. Uh, we talked about the structure of Nesterly and how a community would get that um, going. And it's kind of like uh, if you made a, a, a triangle, Nesterly would be at the top. And then you would have a middleman in for Central Ohio. Um, CO AAA is the middleman between um, the hosts and the guests in Nesterly. For the city of Boston, it was actually the mayor of Boston and the city was the middleman between hosts and guests and Nesterly and, and getting that going. Um, we had some questions about uh, what the typical hosts and guests are and whether there is an age requirement. And uh, the only age requirement is that each party must be at least 18. Um, and there was a question in our group as to whether uh, the host can specify the age. Um, there isn't anything about specifying the age of your guest, but you can kind of outline what your ideal guest would be if you were a host. Um, and setting up a contract with Nesterly, uh, Francis said that the OAAA is on a two-year contract that they actually just renewed. So that would be kind of incorporated in the structure of how Nesterly would get started in a new community. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what our group talked about. So we can turn it over to Lee's group now. Are you going to say something, Lee? Right, jump in. I'll, I'll let you go ahead and, and take take it over, Tim. Thank you for doing this. Sure, you can uh, backfill me. Uh, it was very interesting talking about uh, the village concept. And we talked about you know what I think our initial thoughts were, you know, apartments or homes, but also buildings that, themselves that are senior uh, dedicated that could be a village and uh, another key area was about uh, delaying that entry into long-term care you know and this uh, group has a study that's advancing on that to get the numbers on it but um, from an anecdotal standpoint it seems like something that would you know, help people terms of they need help when they came back from you know, a medical event or they just need help with daily chores or you know, socialization or getting someplace. So it, it also we got into volunteers. So, you know, are the volunteers necessarily all from the community? And there's opportunities for AmeriCorps volunteers and for United Way volunteers to participate in this. And uh, Again, they tend to be younger age, so it kind of drives some of the intergenerational flavor to it as well. So volunteers could come within and without, and it's kind of a win-win, you know, in that way. Uh, what I didn't know is, uh, if I got this right, is all 
the villages are five and one three C's or they're moving towards that if they aren't. Uh, so they're all nonprofits and there's a variety of ways that they you know, do membership, but the more volunteers they have, it's like anything, if they're all volunteer run, then there's not a need for membership. If it isn't, there's membership, but it's usually fairly not. I think uh, or $20 a month as a, as a number. So it's uh, very uh, interesting, but there's really a lot of questions about other agencies that might be involved as well. And uh, like age, age friendly areas, I'm in Cleveland, so age friendly Cleveland, and just kind of figure out who's already involved in this. But that's kind of our, kind of our, all kind of making sure we understood and kind of, uh, you know, revisiting some of the points. That right. Thank you. Uh, before we uh, turn it over to Noreen to close out our time today, we want to give the panelists. Wow. one last chance to present their call to action to the attendees. So John, we'll start with you. No matter where you live, your some jurisdiction has to do a fair housing plan. And those five-year fair housing plans must be added to the consolidated planning process. And so this isn't um, uh, something that is... Uh, um, not required, it is required, okay? So it's not a voluntary thing. And so a uh, place like uh, Yellow Springs, Ohio, village of 4,000, you would go to the county, okay? Um, if you are a city is, that's 50,000 or more, uh, that's a entitlement community, you would do your own or do like Dayton, Montgomery County, and the city of Kettering, and those three go together and do a regional fair housing plan. Those plans are partially based on a research uh, tool that is used to develop the plan, and it's called an analysis of impediments to fair housing. And I'm conducting one of those right now. And uh, uh, in the, the uh, uh, county of M Montgomery County, and I'm going all over the county doing focus groups, and we're recording those, and uh, those recordings are all being added to this research study. We also have a survey online and we are doing interviews with stakeholders. And you should call up your uh, jurisdictions, find out when they're doing their fair housing plan, their analysis of impediments to fair housing and participate. And we do focus groups with older people and we do focus groups with African-Americans and with other minority groups, uh, with women's groups. And so uh, we do it with younger people uh, and uh, students <clears throat> and everyone's voice needs to be heard uh, to become a part of that plan. And that's where you can ask for things like the visitability program, the source of income protection, um, <clears throat> adding a reasonable accommodation ordinance or procedure to your jurisdiction's uh, city or county processes. So uh, if you, you know, want to uh, have your elected officials uh, make a plan that has meaningful actions with material outcomes, that's where you do it is in the analysis of impediments to fair housing. Thank you, John. Francis, I will turn it over to you for your call to action for the group. 
Yeah, my call to action is very simple. I would love for everybody to just talk about home sharing with your friends and family. Um, if you're in Central Ohio, I would love for you to specifically talk about Nesterly Central Ohio. Um, you know, but there is you know, home sharing in and of itself is not a new idea. Um, the more that I have been getting back out into um, talking to different community groups, I end up hearing from a lot of people, you know, that they had done some home sharing before, like, you know, that in decades past, they did some home sharing, um, but it was, they were responding to an ad in a newspaper, or um, they heard about someone from their church, and they were like, I wish that there was something like Nesterly that just had had some additional um, security and support that's built into it. So in Central Ohio, we have that now, um, and so we would love for people to use it. Um, yeah, and then the the other thing that I would just like to, this isn't really related to my topic specifically, um, but I'm reading a great book that I think would be pertinent to the work that everybody's doing here. Um, if you haven't heard of it, it's called Breaking the Age Code by Dr. Becca Levy. Um, the subtitle is How Your Beliefs About Aging Determine How Long and How Well You Live. Um, really phenomenal read. It draws on lots of great research um, and I think is directly correlated to the the work that we're all doing every day. So have to give that a little plug as well. Thank you, Francis and Lee. Well, I want to second the book recommendation, uh, Breaking the Aging Code. It's, a, it's an excellent resource. So Francis, thanks for mentioning that. I just want to say aging in place has never been more important. Um, it, during COVID, it really shined a bright light on communities, community resources, and neighbors helping neighbors. So if you are interested in thinking about starting a village, um, talking to your neighbors and friends about one, I encourage you to go to the Village to Village Network, um, the homepage. There is a place on there that says, what is a village? And you'll start to bring up resources in terms to um, think about how, how to create one. And I think Donna put the link in the chat box. Also, you could contact me directly or you can email uh, v2v at the v2vnetwork.org. And we'll put that in the link as well in the chat room. So I wanna thank you all. Um, the villages survived COVID. They not only survived, but they thrived during the COVID um, pandemic. And you can see activities uh, continued. Um, especially programming, because another epidemic that's occurring uh, in our country is social isolation and loneliness uh, and the impact it has on older adults and their physical health. Um, you may have heard this statistic, which still amazes me that uh, the impact of social isolation and loneliness is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So if you think about that, what the village model offers 
is that wealth of programming, those social connections, uh, whether it's a, a phone tree activity, a walking buddy, uh, they really bring that to the older adult community. So I encourage you uh, to think about the village movement. It is growing and hopefully it'll continue to grow, especially in the Midwest and in Ohio. Thank you. Thank you, Lee. Thank you to all of our presenters and panelists today. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Noreen so she can round out our meeting today. I do want to thank everybody for, for making this possible, Chelsea and Donna, especially for doing the, the heavy lifting and the organizing, to John and Lee and Francis for giving us really valuable content and starting a, what I think are additional conversations along these lines. Um, I, I, we will follow up. We'll send out uh, an email with, with all the links and information that have been shared here today and, um, and contact information for each other so that you can um, consider, continue your conversations offline. But just thanks to everybody for, for making today possible. Many thanks to Noreen Wilhelm and the Ohio leaders of Encore and Age-Friendly Initiatives for allowing us to utilize their program for our podcast today. And thank you to the panel members, Francis Krumholtz, John Zimmerman, and Lee Sempelis for allowing us to tape their presentations. Listeners, thank you for joining us. And don't forget to check out our show notes for contact information, as well as resources on our website. That website address is lookingforwardourway.com. We're looking forward to hearing your feedback on this and any other of our podcast episodes. 